Hey, it's Chris Hartwig from the Painless Networking Group here. Thank you very much for checking out this week's Painless Podcast, episode number three. The goal each week with the Painless Podcast is to connect with and get to know great people in sports, events, startups, and cause marketing. All right. Today's Painless Podcast guest is TK Gore, Senior Director Digital for CSN Chicago. TK, a Philly guy at heart. That's all right, though. Cut him some slack. Uh, That's where he was born. Uh, TK spent uh, 24 years in D.C., uh, gained uh, a lot of admiration for the Washington Post and that great sports section, and had hoped uh, to be the Post's uh, maybe next great sports writer. Uh, Went to attend uh, George Mason University, and while there, grabbed an internship which then led to a position at Home Team Sports, one of the country's first RSNs. And he was really thrown into the fire. He talks a little bit about that, of brokering cable carriage deals at uh, the ripe old age of 21. Uh, that experience, that job, then uh, led him on to some other some other very interesting roles. Uh, at AOL, he was there in the, that heyday, um, involved in a lot of the sports, and uh, particularly talk a little bit about some NASCAR programs. Uh, then he was also at Universal, and then uh, family called him to Chicago. So uh, he's been here now since 2009, where he's helped build and lead the digital team at CSN Chicago. TK, top-notch human being. He enjoys connecting, networking, giving back, and shares some great examples of each of those things in our chat today. So in other words, he is a perfect Painless Podcast guest. So without further ado, let's take a listen to my chat with TK Gore. Hey there, good afternoon, evening, morning, wherever you are, and checking in on the Painless Podcast this week, I've got a great, another great guest in the, uh, I don't know why I keep wanting to call the guests lovely and talented, but uh, the lovely and talented TK Gore is here. Uh, we're going to get into a whole bunch of conversations around CSN Chicago, a digital, uh, his background coming, um, coming up from, uh, we'll get a little East Coast perspective coming from the vaunted uh, AOL days, and uh, now what he's doing with the Cubs, Sox, Bulls, Hawks um, uh, at CSN Chicago. So without further ado, uh, let's bring in TK Gore, Senior Director of Digital at CSN Chicago. Welcome, TK. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here and lovely. Wow. I don't even know how to react. Right? Where do you, you can only go down from there, right? (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait for my wife to listen to this. Podcast and here you introduce right. me the lovely so right. there'll be some those there'll be some chuckles so yeah. but thank you there's, for a, a, a sweet be, intro we'll keep it not explicit at least at this point this is the Valentine's Day edition <laughs> yeah, of the podcast right. um, so I, I mentioned uh, coming as an as an East Coaster um, you know g- give us a little bit of background where did you grow up where are you from sure uh, grew up in the Philadelphia area uh, it's funny my friends and college buddies would always give me a hard time. You're not from Philly. Uh, I'm actually originally from South Jersey. I was born in Camden. I grew up in a small little town there called uh, Haddonfield outside of Cherry Hill. And then I moved down to Northern Virginia uh, in the early 80s and 24 years in Washington, D.C. and pretty much East Coast until I arrived here in the Chicago area in 2008. But you know, New Jersey is my home. I am a New Jersey native. I'm proud right. to be from the, the Garden State. <laughs> uh, exit number three on the turnpike. Uh-huh. Uh, grew up with the Jersey Shore, and I think it's okay to say Jersey Shore. Yeah, right. And uh, But I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I, I, at the heart of it, I'm really a Washingtonian. I spent 24 years yeah. in, in Arlington, um, 
even inside the District uh, of Columbia, and uh, love that city, miss it dearly, uh, and had met my wife there uh, in D.C., and sort of that's why I'm here that, now in that, Chicago. That was in college, right? You went to George Mason, is that right? George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to school there, um, which was being local, if you will. You know, I lived in um, Falls Church, Virginia, then McLean, and I think the intent was to go to George Mason, and hopefully transfer down to Charlottesville to UVA or another institution and fell in love with George Mason, lived on campus, more of a commuter school, but 20,000 undergrad and uh, really got into it and uh, loved my experience there and, you know, didn't have a football team on Saturdays. And, you know, I tend to, uh, you know, cheer for other programs, live vicariously, you know, through the the being in Big Ten country, Uh but loved George Mason, everything it offered and the the friendships and uh, education. Uh, I received there. It, what was what did you major in? What were you studying? And did that change? I mean, did you go in thinking you were going to do one thing, and by the time you were done, come out doing something different? I think I declared my major five times over. <laughs> my mom and stepdad always kind of scratched their head and be like, "Well, he he seems to be learning." Uh, I ended up with English, uh, w- which of course, right? Pe- people raise their eyebrow, like, "Wow, English!" And you've been in digital sports media for how long? Uh, English lit and writing. Um, I think I was pre-business, I was poli-sci, I was international uh, relations, I was education, I wanted to be a teacher, uh, but I ended up in English. I mean, just a, a love and passion to, to read and write, but more so writing. Wrote for the student newspaper, covered sports teams, started to write for weekly newspapers, and just love. So you were doing that stuff, in, did doing you do that all the way through like high school, or did that more once you got to George Mason? More really, once I got to college, mm-hmm. I, I really just had this just passion to write and really got into sports. Tennis was the only kind of sport I played at or excelled at, if you want to call it that. Maybe okay. I, my, I, I peaked at age 14 or so. <laughs> right. um, well, a lot of people but, do in tennis. You know, really, I think my textbooks in college were more so the Washington Post, reading the likes of Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser, also reading Tom Shales. Um, well, that's the that that the Post was, I mean, just a, I mean, a murderer's row, to use a sports cliche, but I mean, just... An, still to this day is stacked with some amazing writers. Oh, Thomas Boswell, Andy Byer on horse racing. The, the editor at the time, George Solomon, you're right, mm-hmm. put together Murderer's Rose. It, it's fascinating. During at one point at AOL, I was actually working with George's son, Greg Solomon. I uh, wish I kept in better touch with him, but he was at NFL.com, and I just used to be in awe of what his father did at the time, because right. to me, like pound for pound, it was the best sports page out there. Um, the and depth I stu- that, that they had was crazy. Oh, I mean, amazing, amazing. So, you know, I, I read SI, I, I read Washington Post, and that's what I aspired to do. I thought maybe when I finished school, I could get my foot in the door at the Washington Post. To me, that was that was where I wanted to be. Oh, uh, okay. And then now, what I what I have here uh, is the the your first job was home team sports. Was that was that the first job? Did you have some other kind of random stuff or? You jump right into that from school. That was the first job. I got an internship there during my senior year. Uh, had an uh, and continued with an unpaid internship after getting my undergraduate degree. Which, again, the family was, you know, supportive. However, <laughs> uh, a lot of the communication was, "We love that you love what you're doing. You're so enthusiastic about it, but you're not making any money." I was writing in the part time to to sort of make ends meet. I was living on my own, uh-huh. um, writing about local swimming events, little league baseball high school things, but it's just something where I understood, or really I was kind of led by my passion. I really wanted to be in this business and I knew I had to sort of pay my dues and do that internship. And I later got a part-time job, uh, hourly, had to, you know, get my own benefits, which is always a struggle. 
uh, then ultimately got hired full-time. So um, before then, yeah, I had a couple odd jobs, I'd say, through high school and college where I worked at a movie theater, and I was probably best yeah. known for my friends at working at this movie theater <laughs> yeah, called right. Multiplex Cinemas, uh, which was always a running joke, but no one seemed to be making jokes at me when they were getting free movies yeah, right. every it, summer. So uh, <laughs> that was a little bit of my entree into the uh, entertainment business. And now Home Team was a collection of D.C. area teams and um, well, explain who, who made up Home Team Sports. It was one of the early on first regional sports networks out there. Um, and it had sort of three founding fathers and three guys that you know, started to serve as mentors to me before I even could comprehend the word mentor, but uh, Bill Aber, uh, Bill Brown, uh, and Jody Shapiro. And home team sports, the main product was Baltimore Orioles baseball when they were in Memorial Stadium when they made the migration to, to Oriole Park in Camden Yards. And the Orioles were very... Uh, ahead of the game, and they came to those three individuals at Home Team Sports and said, what do you want to do? How do you want to program Orioles baseball? Where do you want to put cameras? And I think for every broadcast, we had at least 10 to 12 cameras, a robotic camera. So at the time, in our business, they were definitely advanced in how they produced Orioles baseball. So I got a chance to work with the Baltimore Orioles. The other teams involved in the network were the Washington Capitals uh, and then the Washington Bullets. Yes, now the Wizards, yeah, but right. I like to be old school with the Bullets. Remember the <laughs> uniform? Yeah. So <laughs> home team sports covered those three teams and well, did some ACC basketball, some Colonial Athletic Association, mm-hmm. which I loved being a George Mason grad. Uh, but really, Baltimore Orioles baseball is really um, was the bread and butter of the business. And did you, and ironic, I mean, is, is that what drew you to that too? I mean, were you an Orioles fan growing up? I mean, I grew or? up a Philly fan. I oh, mean, okay. I, I'm very uh, open about my Philly allegiance, um, and we could talk a little bit more because I, I'm more of a brand ambassador of the Chicago teams, and I would think all the teams would agree that I, I, I've been a good, positive ambassador for all their uh, their team, their, their their team business, their performance, and, and and becoming a fan of it. But no, I'm a I'm a Philly guy at heart. But I learned to sort of I, I have a passion for sports and love it, but I. I I gain a respect and understanding for all the people I worked with those teams, how bad I wanted them to win. Right. The other thing I realized is how much I loved learning about the RSN business. And I was involved in doing affiliate relations at a young age. So a 21-year-old who was tasked with going out and negotiating cable carriage for a regional sports network with cable operators, the industry has really collapsed lately where you have a lot of the big providers like my employer right now, Comcast and what they do in the cable space. You have, you know, DirecTV, you have Dish, you have Cox Communication, you have Time Warner Cable. Back then, there were a lot more cable operators out there. So we had a, a strong team, and we would go out and we would negotiate with these cable operators to get carriage. And that's what you were doing, right, that first job. You were you were hands-on with that. Hands-on, learning, uh, if you will, grad school for how to distribute a cable yeah. channel. And this is during the age of cable where it's exploding. ESPN2 is coming out, MTV2. There's a slew of new networks coming out. Now we live in pretty much a, a, a thousand channel universe. Right. You're, you're overwhelmed. You can't just go through the channel guide anymore. It's also become more of a VOD world, and we could talk about m- more of that. But at the end of the day, local sports is something every cable operator had to have. The Orioles were very competitive then, and the channel went all the way down to the Carolinas. This is before the Carolina Hurricanes existed and moved there from yeah. Hartford. So the Redskins, as well as the DC teams, had a really strong footprint when you think about the Mid Atlantic mm-hmm. area even outside of just D.C. and Baltimore. Now, is, is uh, I should know this, but is home team sports, is that been is that rolled up into MASN, or is that did home team go so away? Great, great question. There are now two regional sports networks in that area. You have Masson, 
which is owned by the Baltimore Orioles, and they broadcast Orioles as well as Washington Nationals, which is fascinating that the Orioles own the RSN for the Washington Nationals. And that's, again, a fascinating story if if you follow it. So home team sports, which at the time was owned when I worked there um, by Westinghouse, and I was there from 1994 through 1998. Uh, Then also CBS. We were part of CBS Cable with, um, I love this, uh, country music television, CMT, (laughs) as well as TNN, the the Nashville network. They are now Comcast Sportsnet Mid-Atlantic, which is a part of sort of the RSN team I work with now. So DC right now has two RSNs, and now CSN Mid-Atlantic covers the Wizards and the Capitals. Okay. Got it. And, uh, you know, before moving on to the AOL stuff, actually, uh, you, you talked about you started with an internship with these guys. How did it happen? You know, I'll go back and I'll credit my education at George Mason University. Uh, senior year, trying to figure it all out like everyone, trying to think a little bit big picture outside of, you know, are you going to go to the traditional beach week with fraternities and sororities? And I skipped going that year because I was focused on landing this internship. How I got the internship is I took an elective course, uh, a higher level uh, communications course, cable TV. And the gentleman who taught the class was an adjunct professor. He ran the cable company uh, called Media General Cable in Fairfax, Virginia, was very a key influencer in the cable industry. And our trade, our I guess I should say, we didn't have textbooks. We had trade publications, Cable World Broadcasting and Cable. So when he would have cable networks or programming networks come in and pitch him. ESPN wanted to launch ESPN2, the deuce at the time. MTV wanted to launch stuff. Networks were coming out and offering a suite of networks. He wouldn't allow them to come to his office to pitch them. He said, come to my class. I want my class to learn and give me the same exact pitch. So it was fascinating. It was as real world as you could get. During the course, he brought us over to Discovery Communications. We were able to meet everyone who works at the Discovery Channel as well as TLC, the Learning Channel. And then in that same building in Bethesda, Maryland, was also Home Team Sports. So I was able to go down there and get a tour. And I was sort of one of those um, eager beaver students with his resume in hand uh, who um, would not take no for an answer. And then I quickly learned the power of networking and leveraging key influencers. I asked this professor, his name is Don Matheson, um, I really want to get this internship at Home Team Sports. He said, here's what you do. I will write you a recommendation, but here's what you're going to do. You're actually going to write the recommendation. Oh, because right. I don't have time to write the recommendation. Yeah. So I wrote the recommendation. I sent it to him. Uh, he looked it over, and he agreed with it, and he signed it, and he sent it along. Little did I know how much influence that recommendation letter carried. And, and it, you know, I was able to get the internship. And it was a very competitive internship. So I think some of the people gave me a little bit of grief, uh, but they also uh, were complimentary about my networking skills. Well, right. Uh, that's right. You, you, you used... Um used your knowledge, used your connections, and made sure right. it helped yourself so, stand out above the yeah. other folks. So. so if I didn't take that course, there's no way I'm sitting here today talking to you about sports digital media doing this podcast. Right. So, Well, so speaking of sports digital, were, were you doing any of that um, at that point? I, I, I'm trying to think of you know, what it would really be in mid-'90s at Home Team Sports, or did that happen? You know, you spent about four years there and then moved to AOL – becoming senior manager of sports there, is that where the digital stuff took off? Uh, It was starting. You know, Mm -hmm. in college, I dabbled with Prodigy a little bit. Uh, CompuServe was out there. Mm -hmm. And AOL, which I did not know about at the time, was out there as well. So, you know, when I first got in the workforce in 1994, and I tell a lot of the colleagues who are younger than me right now, no email, 
you know, primarily using fax machines. I'm doing a lot of work in the mailroom. You're working the phones. You're going right. old school. Email started to come into the marketplace. Um, I was a part of a team that first created our first website for the RSN, which was super cool, building content, interviewing our on-air talent, a lot of the stuff that normal networks do today about it's all about getting original content out there. One of my colleagues who became a fast friend, um, integral part of me getting hired there as a full-time, who's become my best friend and also my mentor, his name was Jimmy Lin, and he was our advertising manager at Home Team Sports, came from strong background in radio, uh, good local guy, went to school at American University undergrad and grad, took me under his wing, and it was sort of this work hard, play hard. If you work hard, you can kind of play hard, where he would sort of invite me out and network me and, and, and introduce me. So uh, Beltlantic was doing this telephony project out there. He was involved in it, talking to some Beltlantic people. Uh, a woman named Ann Levy had left Beltlantic and went over to AOL, and they just started an, an AOL sports channel okay. that Ted Leonsis was interested in doing because... <laughs> Steve Case and AOL had acquired Ted Leonsis' company called Redgate, which they were doing a lot of um, new media content. They were putting it on a lot of uh, CD-ROMs at the time. So they started right. this AOL Sports <laughs> Channel. If you remember, AOL was laid out news channel, yep. sports channel, computing channel. There was an influence channel uh, and so on. So I had started networking and meeting a lot of people at AOL, and I loved what I was doing at the, in, in the cable industry within home team sports and the teams, but the more I started to experience and use AOL through Jimmy, I loved it. And it was only about time when I figured out what would be the right opportunity, and that's how I made my way over to AOL back in 1998. And at that point, they had gone from sort of startup darling to start growing into something more, and, and they right. were in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, and then they moved out to Dulles, Virginia into this sprawling sort of right. campus. So that was, that was I was itching to kind of make the move to do something different because it, at the time it just clicked. It just attracted me a little bit more than what cable was at the time. Right, right. So you saw it was both uh, changing up things a little bit, but that the, there's that growth there, opportunity there as well. So it, it made logical sense, it sounds like. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about AOL in the time, in the, the 90s and the early 2000s in terms of Instant Messenger and IMs and Buddy List and content and e-commerce, they were leading the way. I think at one point, maybe the stat was they had controlled about 75% of the internet traffic. We used to joke when we would negotiate with partners, getting on the AOL welcome screen was like an appearance on The Tonight Show. And <laughs> AOL was very, very right. smart about leveraging the audience that they had and how they went out and cut a lot of these deals because you had a lot of these digital startups that needed to get quick distribution. They were they all wanted to get and go through an IPO. And a lot of people were asking, do you have an AOL deal? What is your distribution yeah, right, model? Right, yeah. Because AOL could drive, and we, and we called it the quote-unquote fire hose of traffic. Uh -huh. And at the time, we started cutting deals with all the leagues. The leagues way back in the day, I don't know if you remember this, ESPN.com helped program a lot of the league sites. At the time, a lot of people didn't go to the league sites. It was very stats-driven, schedule-driven. There wasn't a lot of content. You look where they are right now. They are you know, destinations that you want to go to NBA.com for all their right. great, rich, original type content. The leagues took a lot of this back in-house, worked on their own, worked with some third parties, and they cut AOL deals. We wanted to be... We wanted to do deals with them because we felt threatened that they might go and do a deal with, say, MSN.com mm -hmm. and Microsoft. And Yahoo was also out there. Yeah. So it allowed us in the AOL Sports Channel to really build these amazing, close, tight-knit relationships with a lot of the leagues to help drive their balloting initiatives, help drive tune-in. So at, for me in my 20s to interact with whether it was Paul Tagliabue, 
David Stern, Gary Bettman. It was phenomenal. Right. And, and the fact that they were all very savvy about their leagues and their business and the growth and where they saw content going, where they ultimately all launched linear TV channels, they really valued the AOL partnership. Well, and it's got to be looking at where we are now, to, you know, seeing the maybe the, you know, the first inklings, the seed, you know, the seeds of that, some of that stuff like uh, MLB Advanced Media, that's the, the forerunner of that, of taking the stuff back in house. And now it's a model for all the leagues and some of the leagues are using, you know, ML, ML BAM. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that has to be. Uh, amazing to be able to point back yeah, to I mean, MLB Advanced around. Media is a great example because at the time I would say NBA was probably one of the leaders in technology mm-hmm. and right out of the gate. MLB.com wasn't in that same sphere at the time, but I would say they are by far, they are really, really good in what they do. They're really smart in building out that BAM model. I remember when MLB first launched their MLB, um, you know, sort of dot TV like product and we AOL were helping distribute the audio for it. Then we start distributing games and helping build that business. Same thing, we had a longstanding uh, partnership with Sportsline, Sportsline.com, which ultimately came CBS Sportsline, right. which is now CBS Sports. They became huge in fantasy. They invested in a lot of the products. They were able and they were fortunate to get a lot of the traffic and users from AOL to help grow their fantasy business. And you look at that space right now. You know, and I'm loyal to this day. I I use CBS Sports Fantasy products. I do play Yahoo. Right. I do a lot of the other leagues, but they they make a good product out there. And AOL work closely hand in hand, and, and whether a lot of these leagues or other, you know, content media only sites to help build their business. Right. You took a move over to Universal Sports as director of marketing and PR, and were there for about what three years. Uh, that was. What was what was that? Because that was was that more TV based? Was that the model of going to both online and TV product? What you know, or, and you know, explain what was the draw to move over there? I feel like it was first called WCSN, which stood for World Championship Sports Network, and that is a mouthful. <laughs> it later became Universal Sports with NBC taking a uh, sliver of an investment in the business, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was owned by a company called Intermedia Advisors, Leo Hendry and his team leading the way. Phenomenal people to work with and learned a lot from them. When I first made the move, I would say they were ahead of their time a little bit with this whole OTT over-the-top model, premium content. What WCSN did is they went out there, and we worked on this, we went out and gathered as many rights as possible to international Olympic events outside of the official winter and summer games that we all watch on NBC. And let me plug today, it's one year out to Pyeongchang, <laughs> you know, to get my my, uh, my plug in there for my, right. my, my colleagues at NBC Sports Carrying Group and Stanford. Sports always, always with the uh, symphony and synergy. I'm, I, I try to be very good about that in a sincere way. And I'm sure they're all laughing right now for any of those, maybe the five people that listen to this. You I know, drop in bing, bong, bong, or, you know. That's right. That's right. Thank you. So... We went out and we gathered all these rights to a lot of the world championship events. And the idea was NBC drives this phenomenal audience to the summer and winter games. They're great about storytelling, the features, and you get wrapped up and you watch it and you follow the medal counts and it's amazing. Then they kind of go away. So the idea was to kind of fill that gap. But at the time, it wasn't a linear TV channel with zero distribution. It was just WCSN.com. I think at the time we charged $59.95 for one year almost all you can eat and you could live stream. Now, for a lot of these people, these sports are participatory. If you grow up a competitive swimmer, uh, Taekwondo, 
fencing, alpine skiing. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Right. We gathered all these rights. We worked with the national governing bodies, the United States, the Guatemalan market, then we had no marketing dollars. So if you're at really? U- USA Volleyball, I come to you and I'm like, Chris, we have the rights to the FIVB, you know, um, volleyball world championships, or we have these world, you know, Grand Prix events. I need your help to get to your audience. What can you do? And it was scratching. It was clawing. It gave me the experience of working at a true startup where a lot of people didn't answer my phone calls. I didn't have a budget. <laughs> you know, it allowed me to kind of run marketing, but I was doing content development. Right. We were closely with our president. So we had two co-founders uh, in California, and I worked with a former AOL colleague, uh, Carlos Silva, and we had a small Bethesda office. What I loved about our office, and we were joking on Twitter um, a couple weeks ago with some former colleagues, we were above a thrift store. In Bethesda, Maryland, um, <laughs> right across the street, store. above a thrift store, That's and it was fantastic. amazing. We all worked in one room. Our conference room table really? was a ping pong table, or, or table tennis. You shouldn't <laughs> say ping pong. <laughs> and it was very much the true startup atmosphere where uh, I had to make sure that you know we paid our, our, our Deer Park water bill for our bottled water, but right. work on some uh, strategy for the World Swimming Championships and how do we promote this young kid named Michael Phelps who's from the Baltimore area because, wow, we really think he's going to be something special and how we sort of performed uh, in Athens games. And we actually worked closely with a lot of athletes and agents because they saw us as a great sort of portal to kind of help further the athlete's brand to go and maybe garner them some more marketing and sponsorship dollars. We did deals with uh, Bodie Miller and his agent. And it was just, I would say, awesome to learn about the Olympic business inside out and really believe in this Olympic movement. And that's probably one of my biggest takeaways was getting my getting my hands dirty to real startup and, and, and learning what went into that and how we were this premium product and how we went out and kind of built this. We actually built it into a television channel, started to get some distribution, and right. NBC came in and made, made an investment. And that's when we flipped the name to the Universal Sports and put that NBC yeah. moniker on there. Right. Uh, and then people started returning our phone calls, and we, we got some more recognition. So it, it's actually cool almost to fast forward to the role I'm in now to work closely with NBC Sports and NBC Olympics because I have such an appreciation uh, of working on a lot of those kind of Olympic sports leading and kind of coming after the Olympic Games. Yeah, is, is That's the precursor of the – well, it evolved into the Universal Sports – cable channel that then they went dark last year because the Olymp- most of the Olympic stuff was moved over to either NBC or yeah, the, a lot or of the, the Olympic U- events the IOC channel I think is it yeah no, no it's it, it transitioned while that channel that I, I worked on yes it did go dark the events still live on where NBC continued to make an investment where you could mm-hmm. stream a lot of these on NBCSports.com the NBC Sports app let me plug it the app <laughs> but also you're right the IOC and NBC is working with the IOC on that 24 by 7 channel. So there is a place for Olympic sports, obviously globally. Uh, I think sometimes in the U.S. here, we're so focused on stick and ball sports. Mm -hmm. We certainly know in Chicago, being one of the great sports towns that it is, you and I are very likely to talk more about the Blackhawks right now, the Bulls, spring training is coming up, NFL draft, what are the Bears going to do? But we know globally that people will go to a pub or a bar and drink a pint and watch, you know, athletics, you know, which is also, you know, track and field. They'll talk about swimming. These things are a little bit more relevant around the year Mm -hmm. globally. But I think if you, in in the same way, if you look at the growth of soccer over the past 20 years, I think there is more interest gaining in Olympic sports, especially with 
what NBC has done to kind of raise that level. Well, I think that, right, that's actually what I was thinking was that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're leaning towards just dismissing some of those sports. Okay, well, it's every four years, and it's, well, no, those athletes, you know, Michael Phelps is the right. best example. It's four years, well, actually, towards the end, it wasn't all four years in between that he was training, but I mean, there are those competitions, there is content there, and what's going to help your visibility, your recognition, and the build-up to the Olympics, I'm sure, I mean, you know, NBC knows this better than anybody as an, as an Olympic partner is that you know getting to know those people in the during the three and a half years in between right yeah year round I mean that's that's the thing and I mean uh, I think some of my fondest memories were every year we'd go out to Beaver Creek and they have this amazing FIS World Cup event out there and uh, at the time, I got to know a lot of the skiers, and you have a lot of the friends and family and the ski community coming up and thanking you for bringing them live streaming of these, right. you know, all these races mm-hmm. throughout the world. So you felt like you were, in a way, doing good for the Olympic community, where you were mm-hmm. elevating and giving people access to where they normally did not have access to such things through live video. Right. And But I think what it's it, that also does is, first of all, you've got that core group, which is totally committed to it, that is going to support that, that'll give you decent enough numbers and then you're more people get bought in seeing it i mean i think that's some of the you know watching you know european football here that it's people are have caught on from world cup and everything else and they see their friends going out and having a blast supporting whoever their team is on you know man U or whatever um you know they get caught up in it and now there's that much more attention it's more legitimate more people pay attention so the more people pay, pay attention anyway um i i I'm probably one of those people where I've become a soccer fanatic. I'm not an expert by any means, but I love the sport. It's a sport I never played. And the reason I got into it was in 1994, the World Cup came to the United States. And the Mexican national team came out to George Mason University and practiced. Oh, and I was able to go out there and help cover them. And I remember just following and talking, and I needed a translator with Jorge Campos, who was this oh, right. electrifying, colorful goalie. Uh-huh. And at the time, the George Mason soccer coach, who I got to know through covering a lot of the sports at, at George Mason, but I was, I was, I was mainly covering baseball. Um, Bill Brown is still manager there, and I give him a shout-out. He was always so kind to me. The basketball team, men's and women's. So Gordon Bradley pulls me aside, and he's like, TK, you do not appreciate this sport. And I was like, what do you, you know, I got immediately got defensive. Like, what are you talking about? I'm out here. I, I, I love it. And he's like, no, he's like, you're the typical American sports fan. You want slam dunks and touchdowns. You're going to go home uh-huh. and watch Sports Center." And you know what? He was right. And he kind of challenged me. He's like, I force you to appreciate a nil-nil game. You know, follow the game. Come to more George Mason games. I will teach you the game. And then a couple years later, Major League Soccer was born. D.C. was granted a franchise in D.C. United. We had a lot of friends that were working for the club. A guy named Kevin Payne, who I met through Home Team Sports, Mm -hmm. was running it. We started airing the games at Home Team Sports. And some friends and I would would go out to RFK, RFK Stadium a lot. And the thing that was really cool and what drew me in was the fandom out there. They had this group called the Screaming Eagles, and people right. were lighting off smoke bombs in the actual crowd. And it was, it was very fun. It was very communal. D.C. is very mm-hmm. transient, a very diverse city. Right. It's, it's, it's amazing. It feels very European. And I finally started to have this appreciation for soccer because of the World Cup. And then I started going out to soccer bars with a lot of my friends who had spent some time overseas who introduced me to Premier League and the different clubs and the bigger clubs and the smaller clubs, the stories behind it, having an English breakfast and a pint. Right. And it was fascinating. And I carry that now to this day. And I remember the day that I learned that NBC Sports got the Premier League rights. I think I was spending some time with uh, my soccer buddy up there. I'll give a shout out to Kevin Monaghan, um, as well as Troy Uwinchina and, and Rick Cordella. I mean, Kevin is, 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 is a big soccer guy. 
And I was just so thrilled to learn that NBC Sports was making an investment. But you think of what has done for programming on NBC Sports Network. It doesn't compete against anything in the morning. I know I've been so much into soccer and my kids have gotten into it because right. it's live. They get into the crowds. They get into the history. And, I mean, it's been phenomenal. And, I, I, I mean, I've been hooked since, I would say the 90s into soccer. Right. It's the same thing I've seen from NASCAR. The live experience, I mean, really turns people, as you know. And I know you, you've spent a lot of time in sort of experiential marketing and doing a lot of these mobile marketing and, and event type things. I'm an East Coast guy, Northeast. I knew I didn't know anything about NASCAR. At AOL, NASCAR was someone else who we worked with. Right. And we did this crazy three-way deal with NASCAR, Turner Sports, and AOL. We helped rebuild NASCAR.com with our Turner Sports Interactive folks, gave it distribution, learned so much about the sport, started playing fantasy. AOL took it a step further, and we decided to invest as a primary sponsor, and at the time, a Winston Cup car. So we partnered with Richard Childress, Mm -hmm. who's known for being business partners with Dale Earnhardt Sr., Wonderful man, got to learn NASCAR through him and RCR. At the time, we had handpicked the driver we thought was going to be savvy, like digitally internet savvy, help promote AOL. His name was Kevin Harvick. <laughs> and that was the deal. We we're going to do the AOL Chevy number 30 car, and Kevin Harvick was going to drive it. And this was in 2001. And it was actually really sad. That was the Daytona 500 where Dale Sr. Oh, passed right. away. Right. And at the time, and I think if I have my facts correct, our deal was not done, but it was close to being done. And it was a really tough time for, obviously, Richard Childress and NASCAR as a full and an entire nation, if you think about just what that number three meant yeah, huge. to everybody. Richard ended up coming to AWO and saying, I need to put Kevin in Dale's car. That's what he would want. But I have another driver. His name was Jeff Green, a uh, great guy from Owensboro, Kentucky. And he like just killed it in the Bush series the previous year, won like 10 races. Right. And we ended up, he ended up driving our car, and Kevin Harvick went on the drive at the time, the number 29 uh, GM Goodwrench car. Uh, so we spent three years in the business. Unfortunately, we went through about five or six drivers. Yeah. It was still, one, a learning experience. Two, I'll also say my AOL experience not only was an amazing experience, it also gave me my wife, Sean, who I met there. <laughs> but the funny thing is NASCAR has always been a common bond between us because she had worked in our brand marketing group there. So she actually spent time working on the primary car relationship uh, with an agency who was involved in an RCR. And so we actually would go to a lot of races. And to this day, we st- when we can, in juggling kids and right. things, we still enjoy watching races. <laughs> and we've been to a lot of these races where it is a spectacle under the lights, oh, the right. color, the smell right. of gas and rubber. And a lot of people will look at me like, you're crazy. Yeah, right. It's not just a Southeastern-based sport. No. It has grown in many ways. Um, I mean, NBC finally got into the game and showing some races, too. But if you look at what NBC has done, what Fox has done, I mean, ESPN back in the day, it's 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 an awesome sport. And as you know, and you can appreciate, it's so sponsor-driven. So I love going to races when I have time. Right. Uh, I still need to go to Talladega. I still need to go to Bristol. I have a fondness for uh, Dover and Richmond just because they were the closest tracks to where we were in D.C. Yeah, yeah Bristol... Uh, the Bristol Night Race is should be at the top of the it's list. Definitely it's definitely still intense. on my sport bucket list. It's, it's intense. Uh, just the the whole the true Coliseum all the way around and 
you know, whatever they've got this this day and age, 150,000 people in there, or something. It's it's amazing, and it is, but it comes down to the experience. It's the same thing I would do when I was working on uh, the Chicago Marathon. Was people like, well, why would I want to come out and watch that? And I certainly don't want to participate in it. And it's just like, look, when you go get your coffee on Sunday morning, just come and check it out. And I would get calls after you know the the days after the race that next week or so. Oh my God, that's the greatest thing! And not only are they going to come back, but I'm going to sign up and run next year. Right, like they right. go way overboard. I'm like, hey, I don't know. Why don't you try running a 5K first? But, but yes, it's so experiential. That's why it works, and why sports, you know, still break through. It still works, right? It's live. It's not a DVR thing, and this that's all part of it. And I think getting finding the right way to take NASCAR to the broader northern audience they've been figuring that out that's gotten better it's helped grow the sport that way and some other things like the olympic sports of figuring out well how do we really show how fast these marathoners are running and and also the you know in sled cameras or whatever kinds of things like that or you know along the track that you're going like oh my god like i did not realize that they're going that fast and now you can do yeah the technology, technology is improving at such an accelerated rate that you can have this real feel and i mean i'm going beyond just you know you know, cameras and, and, and NASCAR with the stock cars. We've been doing that for years, but you're right to give you that real feel. I mean, I used to love when uh, Fox would do that feature, crank it up, yeah. you know, and I would just jack that <laughs> volume up, up and uh, you, it would it would mimic that sound if you've been right. to the race. And it's funny, you talk about marathons. I did not grow up a runner whatsoever. Now, D.C. does have a marathon, the Marine Corps mm-hmm. Marathon. It's not as big or as global as the Chicago Marathon. No, but it's a, it's a solid. It's a very But well I would say I was one of those event. people that were, you know, roll out of bed, go grab my coffee. Why is this shutting down the streets? <laughs> and then I would have some crazy friends out there, and they would send me these emails and maps and meet me at mile 10. You know, so I had a, a good buddy and longtime roommate, another best friend of mine, Dave Gibran. He's like, come out and give me some goo packs. And I'm finally like, all right, I, I should go out based on our friendship. It's yeah, been right. long enough. <laughs> so, you know, I rolled out there with my Starbucks and gave him some goo packs and, of course, got caught up and started jogging with him and talking to him. And next, you know, I'm running a couple miles and I'm overcome by the whole participatory right. level, you know, where it's one thing, it's go- if, if it's one thing to go to a NASCAR race or Barclays Premier League match and experience it as a fan, but it's one thing to actually be out there and you're on the same course as the elite runners. Granted, they start a lot earlier. Right, but, but it's the exact same condition. Everyone can go and participate. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, my wife, Sean, and I were dating and she had run the Chicago Marathon. We had a little bit of a bet, like, I bet you can't run a marathon. It was like, <laughs> you know, boy versus girl, girl versus boy. Uh, at the time, I didn't want to try to go and do a marathon, so we did this Army 10-miler and I really got into it. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say I ended up running the, the 2004 Marine Corps Marathon. I nice. really, really got into it. Yeah. And then a couple years later, uh, and maybe this is a, a slight humble brag, but when I was at WCSN, <laughs> we cut a deal with the Boston Athletic Association, the BAA, uh, to, to do a global stream of the Boston Marathon. So about two months before the race, they gave um, our president, um, Carlos, um, I was one of the folks and a few others, five bibs. And they said, you can't, you can't uh, give them away, no promotions, um, but you can use them. So I was like, well, there's only one thing to do. We should right. run it. We should use it. You know, I, I've run one. He had never run one. So a few of us, another guy, Dave Ungrady, and um, uh, five of us ran it. It was a phenomenal experience up in Boston. If you, if, if you haven't been to Boston for Patriots Day right. Marathon, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. The Red Sox are playing early afternoon at Fenway, late morning, and everybody comes out. You literally feel like a rock star yep. out there. It's I, I, have, I get uh, chills right now going... Uh, going up my spine thinking about that because it is it's a 
it's an unbelievable experience that if you're not there, you know, it's hard to hard to even explain. Can't believe I gave you chills. Yeah, you know, right? Wow. You're lovely, though. So, <laughs> <Thank okay>. <laughs> so uh, you know, uh, talking now, we've we've gotten up to basically current day. You you moved to um, CSN Chicago in 2009, and was that you know within company or was that at that point was separate? That you it was really a true job change. Uh, you know, making that move. Yeah, I'll back up a year before then. It was more of a life change because. I moved to Chicago with Sean. We had a daughter in uh, Washington, D.C., Campbell. Uh, she's nine now. And we decided that we wanted to take our life to Chicago. She's from here. And I'd lived in D.C. for 24 years. She was there for 10 years. And it was a, it was a big family move. And we ended up um, moving here. And I still worked at the startup. Uh, I was working out of my house. Uh, and at the time, over the next year, I knew ultimately I wanted to find something in Chicago. Um, I was working at a startup, and and sometimes there's that risk reward feeling when you go into a startup. You know, right. eyes wide open, you want to find something that's a little bit more yeah. um, stability. And I ended up um, a woman who I'd worked with, uh, Dana Zimmer, had introduced me to now my boss and our GM Phil Bedella. They had gone through this Comcast um, executive leadership program, and she said, you know, you should get to know Phil. Go grab lunch with him. And he and I, we actually went over to East Bank Club. We grabbed a lunch and. He said, hey, by the way, I'm looking for someone to run our digital group. And job's open right now. We're interviewing people. And I was like, oh, what are you looking for? You know? And I was like, okay, okay. I was like, well, you know, I had about eight years of experience at AOL, you know, working with a lot of, you know, sponsorship, client, a lot of the leagues. I just came three years working at a startup on a shoestring budget, how to do a lot with a little. Yeah. Um, how do you also go and create a digital platform to create content about the teams. And by the way, just so everyone is aware, with our CSN Chicago, the teams own approximately like 70% of the network right. with the investments from you know Jerry Reinsdorf with the Bulls and the White Sox, Rocky Wirtz with the Blackhawks, and um, when I first arrived there, Tribune Company with right. the Cubs, and now with the Ricketts family and, and Tom running the Cubs, they all own an equity stake in the channel. And it was an interesting conversation, I think, at the time when I was interviewing, but how do you go and you create a content destination to cover teams that you are business partners with? And it's a question I get asked a lot, and I've been asked on panels, but we go out there, and our job is to cover the team through wins and losses. There are no personal attacks. We're very straightforward with our news coverage, but yet we are thoughtful where we want to be insightful with news, analysis, features, original reporting. And I'm proud of everything we've done to this day. And I think the teams have loved the coverage. And, you know, sometimes it's hard when you're a popular club. You could say, well, we don't necessarily need the news coverage or we're doing things on our own with where we're going in the media world with teams and leagues taking back ownership. But I would say if you took a poll of all the teams, I'm really i confident that they would say we love what CSN Chicago has done, especially with our digital platform, because We've added more content, more storytelling with what we had been doing with the traditional in-studio, out-of-studio shows where you have a lot of these beat writers who have become real cross-platform, like multimedia journalists, collecting sound, going on the road, getting some real good stories, but going on TV and in-the-game broadcast and sharing a lot of these stories with you where we're able to kind of elevate the storytelling. And to me, there's a place for it, but how, uh, very competitive. When I first took the job, 
um, I think a, a, the, the key driver at the time, ESPNChicago.com had launched. Oh, right. And it was the first ESPN local city site. And I just told myself, I'm not going to have a sleepless night worrying about the traffic they were generating. They're doing a good job. They, they own a radio station here. They do a phenomenal job. And if you think about it, at the time, ESPN was launching a lot of these local city sites at an alarming rate. You had Boston, you had Dallas, you had Los Angeles, and New York. Um, and again, I think there's a place with what we're doing mm-hmm. because the, the newspapers, again, quality reporting going on there. You have a lot of these portals. I mean, everyone is ba- everyone is battling for the mind share. Right. You know? Right. But you've got, like you said, that besides the actual game content, the broadcast work, that because of what your staff is doing and covering each of them, they're around and seeing and now you know have the direction and ability to capture some of those other things um, that not only helps inform their their reporting around the games, but you, you've got other um, content again, for lack of a better word, that they're coming out with that you can you can you can use that gives them an advantage, gives you an advantage as CSN Chicago over what the papers are doing. I can, you can see that they're doing more where they're having their reporters capturing video and things like that and popping it up on their sites. So it probably helps keep pushing you guys as well. You're right. I would say a lot of these team beat writers, let's call them, I mean, they're thought leaders. They uncover stuff and they're doing stuff that others aren't doing. I will say, you know, and I'm biased, but Patrick Mooney is by far the best Cubs beat writer. There, there, there is no doubt, and I will debate anybody. What I learned early on with hiring a lot of these writers, we didn't necessarily know how much we were going to ask them to be on TV. And if you ask any right, one of them, right. th- they would tell you. And it's interesting because Tracy Myers, she's our Blackhawks beat writer, uh, and she's been on the beat for about seven years now. She actually just did a, a, a podcast. We're doing this big documentary right now called called Tomboy, and she was interviewed by one of our uh, original programming folks, Sarah Locke, and I was just listening to the podcast today. It's kind of fresh in my mind. And they were actually talking about how much she's been on TV because she wasn't necessarily prepared. And I don't think at the time when we were hiring her, I didn't really tell them how much we intended to put each of these writers on TV. Uh And Patrick would say the same thing. I learned early on, and we tried to force it with a couple writers to to force the relationships with the announcers. But Patrick is a really good example because he built a one-on-one relationship with Len Casper. They spent Mm -hmm. time at spring training. They had a lot of, I'm sure, off-the-record conversations, a lot of meals together, where Len, and to me, he's one of the best play-by-play guys out there, he would invite Patrick on. I remember someone came to me and said, oh, TK, great job. You got Patrick in the broadcast. And I was like, you know what? That's all Patrick, and it's all Len's doing. I'm a proud almost father, if you will, Uh but that's that's all between them. So... You know, thanks for trying to give me credit, but credit to them. You know, and Len is somebody who will cite Twitter during a game if there's buzz going on. And, you sure. know, we'll do these social media nights. But that relationship there happened because of their passion. And I think they're just smarts for knowing what would make for good content for the audience. And now right. you see Tracy has a phenomenal relationship with, with Pat Foley and Eddie Olchek. And they'll, they'll go to her during a game for some sort of input. So it's different storytelling. And that's the point. I think Tracy was saying in this podcast, they were, she grew up a traditional beat writer. And how do you sort of, if you will, write or, or talk for TV? So we gathered all these 
you know, um, beat writers who didn't weren't necessarily brand names here in Chicago, but now they've come brand names. I think if you ask any one of the people that follow the Blackhawks or the Bulls, they will tell you who Vinny Goodwill is. They will tell you who Dan Hayes is. They will go down the list on and on and on and tell you because we've been very, I would say, thoughtful in how we've sort of integrated them, but integrated them in a way that it wasn't going to upset the folks that work there, like the David Kaplans and Chuck Garfines, right. where they could be additive and complementary to what they're doing. Because the RSN is a very, very unique business because you have to think about those relationships with the teams, how the team performs, and at the end of the day, what are you, you, know, what are you giving to the audience? Right. Well, how, and so you know, talking about that, you're kind of the digital team. How many people are in that group right now? I would say there are probably 13 full-time people, but also we have a number of strong part-timers right. who probably they work full-time hours who are just hustlers where we have a strong group of young producers. When I say producers, you know, people that will write articles, they'll have bylines, they'll curate content. And when I say curate content, I mean curate in a good way. You'll see something somewhere, you know, Chris Hartwig wrote this for the Associated Press or the Chicago Tribune. They'll cite you, they'll link to you. I think a lot of times in this digital world, everyone, it's so, so fast paced. Everyone's trying to outdo each other either with bad curation, which is just lifting stuff and almost yeah. stealing it or not right. citing, you know, proper, you know, accreditation to somebody, or, or excuse me, crediting someone, right? Or people out there just want to be loud with you know hot takes, and I think um, sports debate is good. I think sometimes it can get a little uh, rough, you know, with some um, not necessarily mediums, but just some personalities out there because everyone is trying to one up everybody. I think it definitely. I think there's smart sports talk radio, if you will, that also happens on live linear TV, which then therefore happens in sort of social media. So I think we've got a group of young, hungry, passionate producers who work well together, who knows what makes good content mm-hmm. um, and what to kind of put out there, again, to sort of you know, feed you. You know, when we talked about AOL and I thought about you know, where we worked in Dulles and it was this campus of seven buildings, we would have this plaque everywhere. It was our mission statement. It was like to become as valuable as a television or telephone. That's what we wanted AOL to be. And oh, when I first right. got to CSN Chicago, I asked a lot of people, what's our mission statement? What are we here for? And we didn't necessarily need one, but at the end of the day, I think you know, we are here to inform and entertain, and that's what we do. We entertain because of live games. That's, that's our main content. That is our bread mm-hmm. and butter. And then what we do is we build content around the live game experience with pre and post game, with Sports Talk Live. We have this super cool show now called In Loop, which is more of a social media digest show, which informs you and entertains you about what's going on with your core teams, but will also let you know if there's a fun kind of viral video out there or some things maybe you know the players are doing sort of off the field, off the ice, and, and what that kind of means. And I know that has definitely attracted a younger mm-hmm. audience, and we're still doing a traditional kind of um, little faster-paced, 15-minute um, sports news show called Fast Break, and then we're you know, digitizing and, you know, doing everything on demand as well, well. Well, right. But that's the beauty of what you've got, this content across all the different areas. You can do that. You've got the platform to do it. We, we, we definitely doubled down in high school and preps, and it, it's really to the credit to the folks there that I work with. I call my colleagues, um, like Jake Flanagan. Uh, 
He's one of our senior managers, and he just had this passion to create a Hard Knocks-like show around a high school football team. And I said, you know, pitch me the idea, you know. And he said, let's cover, you know, Mount Carmel, the caravan. You know, and I had known about them because I grew up in Philadelphia. I followed the Eagles. I knew Donovan McNabb. And I'm like, right. absolutely, let's go. He's like, I got a relationship with the coach. Uh-huh. I'm like, let's go. And now it's become a staple franchise, a, right. a digital documentary, Hard Knocks-like, where the team the teams have been all in, and we've had some tremendous teams to go out and follow. Joe Collins on our team has been great working with us with high school and guys like Scott Shangnon and, and Mark Straubman, where they really go and embed themselves with the team, with the coaches, the parents, and you see it's so community-driven, and a lot of people have this appreciation because, again, it goes back to these are stories that we're elevating that we need to tell and we should tell, and as as much as we're talking about the the Cubs and Rizzo or, you know, Kanan Taves and Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade with the Bulls, high school and preps, what we cover in all sports. Of course, we do a lot around football. We do basketball. But we show a lot of these championships on our internet, and we're live streaming them. And we've got basketball coming up for boys and girls. We're doing wrestling. We've expanded. We're doing Iowa now. And, you know, I grew up as somebody, you know, reading that Washington Post and thinking to myself, wow, I can get my foot in the door with the Post and become a high school beat writer. And then you you write about college, and then you write for Mm -hmm. the pros, and you become a columnist. I mean, I think in a way... the newspaper business has struggled. I think they've probably pulled back some compared to what they used to do. So we saw it as a way that we could kind of fill the void with video because that's at the end of the day, people love video. It's storytelling. Right. We can sort of insert ourselves and help kind of grow the CSN business outside of what we do with our, our core teams. And so I'm glad you mentioned high school because it's it's near and dear to my heart. I, I wrote about high school, right. you know, in my 20s, and I think it's awesome in what we do in covering, like, the IHSA. Well, there's great story. There really are great stories there. There's not enough of that that's going deep. That's why I want to do the Painless Podcast is have longer than 20-second soundbite conversation right. with somebody, right? Yeah, So to yeah. be able to have that in multiple ways, whether it's online or on, on linear or... You know, however you're going to package it, that's fantastic. It's Here's the one thing I'll tell you about why high school matters in Chicago. And we were kind of almost shocked. So you have a Saturday night in October, Cubs at Wrigley playing the Los Angeles Dodgers. They clinch to go to the World Series. That same night, we did a two-hour IHSA playoff bracket show. And for those who grew up here know that the IHSA – the high school teams know that they're going to the playoffs, but they don't know who they're playing. So we worked with the IHSA and let, they said, let's make this our March Madness. We do this two-hour show. We do all the classes from class one up to class 8A, and we did it live that night. This, the same exact time, the Cubs and Dodgers, with the Cubs winning, it's a phenomenal evening at Wrigley, that show garnered a strong rating for us, and the amount of live streams we had just showed you. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are watching the Cubs and following it, or maybe streaming it. They were also streaming our show, and it just shows you that even though the Cubs, one of the biggest sporting events that could be going on, and I know there may have been also a number of diehard White Sox fans that maybe were not watching, but it just shows you <laughs> that high school matters sure. in this area. Right. One of the, the biggest sporting events for the Cubs to clinch we had this phenomenal high school football well, audience. A, it is a community thing. And when you've got the playoffs, that's basically affecting everybody, right? I mean, not everybody makes the playoffs, but a, a, you know, a, that's a ton of teams. So that makes sense. And you're watching everything over. It's a community experience. And so you, and people aren't doing it on just one screen. It's on multiple screens. Right. So, all right. Well, we're um, 
we're running out of time here. I know we've, you've got other stuff you've got to go go do. So you're somebody that is, we talked about authentic, but you're authentic about giving back. You, you, you know, this is, you're about networking. That's how we've gotten to know each other over the last few years. But you, you do that. You give back. You, you're teaching a class at Northwestern. Uh, you're on a board with the Chicago Fire Foundation. I love making a difference, right? I want to make an impact. You want to pay it forward. These are phrases and terms I use, but I kind of follow. Um, it's something that early on when I was working home team sports and creating this wonderful friendship, mentor protege relationship with my buddy Jimmy Lin, he really instilled in me. And I think a good example is he had a classmate from American University, a woman named Susie Kay, who um, my wife and I became good friends with in D.C. She started a, a program called the Hoop Dreams Scholarship Foundation. And the name actually came from the Hoop Dreams documentary that was done here in Chicago. And Susie was a high school teacher at H.D. Woodson High School um, in Washington, D.C. And her goal was to go beyond the history class that she was teaching to make a difference in the lives of these kids to help them get to college. And a lot of these kids, um, they would be the first ones that go to college. And so she created a scholarship fund. And so Jimmy had been a mentor. He got me into being a mentor. Um, my wife, Sean, and I, we mentored We mentored uh, three wonderful um, young ladies throughout the program. But we met... One Saturday a month at George Washington University or American University, they bring in guest speakers and we would spend time. And it felt like a big brother, big sister type program, but we did different exercises. We, we worked with financial aid with them. We met their parents. We went out for lunches in a lot of ways. And, and some of the young ladies that we mentored, um, we kind of joked, like, how much value can we add? Because these are very smart young ladies. You know, but we brought them to sporting events and other events where they normally wouldn't have gotten access to and got them in front of people to, to build their confidence to talk about themselves and have an elevator speech and talk about what you want to do and what you want to accomplish in life. We went to all their high school graduations. We keep in touch with them. So being a part of that program and watching the, the, the impact it made, there was another program at AOL where we adopted a high school, Calvin Coolidge High School, and I mentored a, a young man there. But it's something, just my belief, and I, I think you talked about networking, and I'm always big on networking. I'm preaching it. And I think networking is a really, really good thing in brokering relationships. A lot of people helped me out early on, too, in my career when they didn't have to. And I kept in touch with those people. And I always said, you know, I want to pay it forward to thank them to that next generation who's coming up. The, the, you know, it's like the leaders of tomorrow, they're here today. We should take time to kind of help you know, groom them and guide them and give them opportunities and, and, and listen. So, you know, I, I love teaching. It's, it's kind of in my DNA. Uh, I've been surrounded by good teachers all my life. And Jimmy brought me into Georgetown to do a little, like, teaching assistant. I, I kind of, you know, you know, got my hands dirty doing that. And then I got a chance to teach at University of Chicago, um, again, because of a strong relationship with my buddy over the Chicago Blackhawks, Adam Kempinar, who was teaching a film course. And he told the University of Chicago, oh, really? you should a talk to TK. Course. And That's I was cool. like, Adam, I've known you for a couple of years. I had no idea you'd teach film. Uh -huh. you know? And he's like, I don't really broadcast it that much. But I'm like, that's super cool that you're really into the arts and film. And so I got a chance, because of my relationship with the Blackhawks, to teach University of Chicago. <laughs> and now I've been teaching at Northwestern um, with our buddy Adam Grossman sure. of Block 6 Analytics. Yep. And I thank him for the opportunity after uh, coming in and guest speaking. I thought, hey, he's like, we should teach a course together. So we've been teaching this entrepreneurship course. 
um, which has been really, really cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm between a job and three kids. I, I love to give back when I can. It's, right. it's always a juggling act, but you know, to me, we, we should take, take the opportunity always to make a difference, you know, out there and help others. Right. And that's, that's kind of, that's my mindset. Right. Right. And then the fire foundation, uh, same thing, just a different, you know, for a different type of organization, giving back, I'm sure lending your talents to you know, marketing, digital w- w- advertising, promotion type talents, as well as probably rolling up your sleeves on some things with them. Same kind of a thing, uh, you know. Yeah, there. I've been with the Chicago Fire Foundation now. I think maybe about two years, and it's phenomenal because they really do positive things to impact the youth in Chicago through sports, through soccer. Uh, their after-school plays program um, is really, really strong. In fact, they just won this global award, and they beat out the likes of Premier League teams, the major wow. kind of stick and ball teams. And I was so happy. Last week, uh, the commissioner, Don Garber, was here, uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel, um, the Chicago Sports Commission. I believe you you and Cara Bachman spoke. They were all there on stage. And they talked about the Chicago Fire Foundation. They were there to announce that the MLS All-Star Game is coming to Soldier Field. And by the way, a great backstory about how Rahm cornered Don Garber (laughs) at Soldier Field during the Copa Final to get him to say yes. And credit to Rahm to bring this event here, which... Starts on a Wednesday, August 2nd, and then Lollapalooza starts. Yeah. It's going to be a phenomenal uh-huh. week. Yeah, that's going to be a crazy weekend. So we talked a little bit about I've become this like soccer nut. Um, I also had a friend of mine from the early 90s, Doug Hicks, who's now at Chicago Fire. He mentioned to the foundation executive director, Jessica Gavitz, you know, maybe uh, you should invite TK onto the board. And it's something I jumped at because I, I've been wanting to get board experience. And I thought, here's something, again, where I can... I want to add value, but I want to make an impact. What can I do with my Rolodex, with my relationships? What can I do to help them and what their core mission? And I have to say, you know, Andrew Hopman, who owns the fire and the front office with AK and Doug, they're really, really behind it. And the things that they do, and I've done my homework, I mean, they are outstanding and kind of, in my opinion, being league leaders in the MLS and what they've done with the foundation, but consistently through the community. So again, I, I feel fortunate. I take a lot of pride in, um, in, in being a part of the Chicago Fire uh, Foundation. And I think that the MLS All-Star Game this summer is only going to put, again, a, a positive spotlight on soccer, but as well as the fire, but with what they do with youth soccer here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, yes. They're and thank great. you for asking me about the, the, the fire. Well, because, it's, well, it's a great, I mean, but that is, we, we talked about this before the turn the mics on about how that the, that soccer and community and the fire is about community. And so, I mean, I think that just is combining, you know, you're going to get involved. Like you said, you lovely wife, lovely husband, you're, you know, it's a perfect match. Lovely. You love the word lovely. lovely. I don't know why I'm stuck on that, but three kids and your regular job and everything and teaching a class, you got to do something that you really are passionate about because otherwise it gets pushed aside. And so, you know, this makes seems to make perfect sense. Uh, right. it, love what you do, right? Love, this? love what you do, and uh, so I think we should end right there. It, you know, anything else that I didn't touch on? I think this I was a great conversation. Feel fortunate you wanted to talk to me. Thank you for the oh, the, the chance to uh, chit chat here. The honor and pleasure is all mine. TK Gore, thank you very much. To Chris Hartwig, one of the great networkers out there as well. But no, thank you, buddy. I love it. All right, thanks, TK. Such a great guy, huh? Thanks again to TK Gore for being our guest this week. 
and thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Please rate us and subscribe and share, whether you're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or some other favorite app of yours. Spreading the word is much appreciated. And any and all feedback, good, bad, up, down, guest suggestions, whatever, send it to painlesspod at painless.network. Hope you'll join me again next week when my guest will be Chris Reuter, CEO of a exploding sport called Spikeball. If you haven't listened to the first couple episodes, got a ton of traction, a lot of folks listening and giving some great feedback. Hope you'll check them out too. Conversations with Nancy Armour of USA Today and Kara Bachman of the Chicago Sports Commission. Please check them out and let me know what you think. So until next time, this is Chris Hartwig saying... Stay connected, friends.